Welcome back to Ars Arcanum, an exploration of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. I'm Nora. I'm joined by Mark. Hi, I'm Mark. We don't have a cat today. Autumn is taking the week off, but we're here to talk about chapters 16 to 20 of Mistborn, The Final Empire. Yeah, we are. Did you read anything in the time since our last episode? I did. I didn't. I read some stuff. Not not a huge amount, but um, I finished The Warrior's Apprentice. Ton of fun. Um, Miles mm-hmm. is so fucking stupid. His ideas of what impressed girls are, like, digging up the horrible secrets about what happened to the mother that her extremely creepy father never talks about. Uh, that's his idea of how to impress a girl. Uh, and it kind of works, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, let's see. Um, I also read a book that is kind of a weird one for me because of its, like, I guess, place in my life. Uh, this is a book called The Devil in a Forest. Um, and it's a quite early short novel by Gene Wolfe. Um, there seems to be some kind of claim that it's YA, but I think that's just because mm. it's short and has a teenager as a protagonist. Um, and it's very funny that this book gets that treatment, whereas his other book, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which is also short and also has a teenager as the protagonist, does not get seen as YA. I would assume because The Fifth Head of Cerberus has a lot of like fucking clone incest and stuff in it. Um, and people people are like oh that's creepy that can't be for teens (laughs) whereas the devil in a forest only has about six people getting murdered in gruesome ways so that's fine for teens that's that's healthy it's like eating your your breakfast cereal of nails every morning (laughs) um without milk yeah. That's right. Ars Arcanum, everyone's favorite SpongeBob podcast. Yeah, I didn't know what the fuck you were talking about because I've never <laughs> seen an episode of SpongeBob, but I was just kind of like, I'm going to let Nora roll with this, whatever the hell it is. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, the thing that makes this book weird for me personally is that uh, I found it at my parents' house because uh, I went to my parents' house for Christmas. Um, and. I found it on the shelf and I was like, oh yeah, I remember this cover really vividly. We totally had this book around the house when I was a kid. I'm pretty sure I read it, right? So I take it off the shelf and I'm like, what the fuck? This is by Gene Wolfe? Is this the first Gene Wolfe book I ever read? Because the thing is, I love Gene Wolfe now. I think I could probably say he's my favorite author. A lot of his works are extremely important to me. But I didn't actually like get into him in this kind of way. And in particular, I didn't read... The Book of the New Sun, which is his, like, big, big famous work, um, until college, because Mm -hmm. of Ben getting me into it. Um, actually, I might not have even read The Book of the New Sun until, like, post-college, come to think of it. Anyhow, the point being, he wasn't actually, like, one of those authors that I, like, read a ton of as a teen. Um, so, yeah, finding this book in my house, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, like, my gene wolf obsession prehistory did i read this book i gotta read it now and see what happened and i opened the book and the main guy is called fucking mark and i was like all right okay okay um but then i as i I was reading it i did not remember one goddamn thing from this book 
So either I did read this book and this is like one of the first Gene Wolfe things I read and it completely disappeared from my memory, which would be very weird. Or uh, I had this book around the house and I saw the cover a lot and thought it looked really interesting. And it was a book by the guy who would later become my favorite author, but I never actually picked it up and read it, which is also weird. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I got no idea what happened there, but it's an interesting book. Um, the back of the cover is just like 100% lies. Um, I don't think a single goddamn word of it is true. Uh, it claims that this is a fantasy novel, which I don't really think is accurate. Um, like... Is there a sword? Uh, you know, I don't think so. There's like spears against it there's spears and axes and like a big heavy like blacksmith hammer and arrows there's a lot of because okay the book is set in like pretty early medieval times it's not like explicitly Mm -hmm. described in the book but um i guess one thing that's on the back cover that i don't think is total lies is that it says the book is set during the time of king wenceslas which Apparently, this is something Gene Wolfe said, although I couldn't find this author's note online anywhere, but I found a ton of things being like, oh yeah, Gene Wolfe totally said this in an author's note, that the book was somehow inspired by the Christmas Carol, Good King Wenceslas. Um, it doesn't really have like narrative parallels with the Christmas Carol, but it seems like basically just there's a moment in the Carol where it's just like the king and his attendant spot this like poor peasant gathering firewood. The king is like, who's that? Uh, and his attendant is like, oh, that's one of the peasants. He lives over there. Um, and I guess Gene Wolfe read that and he was like, what would it be like to be a peasant who lived over there? Um, <laughs> so the book is probably set in like, I don't know, the 800s, 900s. Um, and it's like a tiny, tiny village that's at the edge of a forest and it's near, like, a, a holy fountain of St. Agnes. Like, a, basically, you know, a shrine where people would be pilgrims to. Um, mm-hmm. And there's probably about, like, there's, like, maybe eight people in this town and six of them die over the course of the story. Um, yeah, not town, village. Um, and the main character, Mark, is the apprentice to the weaver in this village. Um and uh i guess essentially the like inciting incident of the plot is that there's this uh highwayman named watt the wanderer who is like around and he's been robbing pilgrims so fewer and fewer people are coming as pilgrims to this shrine uh which means this town which is already kind of tiny and barely hanging on is uh barely even more barely hanging on they're not making like any money um and the men of this village are like all right we're gonna form a militia and go hunt down this watt guy uh and there's a creepy old woman who seems like she's some kind of witch named mother groot and she's doing weird shit um that somehow involves this ancient dead man who lives or or who is dead i suppose under like a hill in the in the forest um Mm -hmm. 
And the story, I think, is kind of about this idea of, like, ancient pagan traditions clashing with Christianity and sort of um, uh, a certain kind of, like, uh, wild living clashing with what exists of kind of, like, civilization in this place. Um, because the in addition to the people who live in this village... There's also all these charcoal burners who live in the forest, um, and, you know, they have, like, a different kind of life, and they seem to maybe not really be Christians. Um, yeah, it's an interesting story. Um, I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, I definitely think I would have enjoyed it when I was, like, younger, so I'm, again, really surprised I maybe didn't actually read it. Uh, but I don't have a ton to say about it, um... It's kind of one of those things where, like, when you read an author's, like, earliest works, sometimes you can mm -hmm. be like, oh, I see how you were, like, kind of playing with this idea that you're going to do more stuff with later. Um, this is Elantris. Yeah. Yeah. No, Elantris definitely has that going on. Like, uh, mm -hmm. we got the girl boss princess, for example, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and then you can see, like, okay, he's going to take this girl boss princess concept and develop it, and he's going to have potentially better <laughs> girl boss princesses in the future he's gonna pick three different aspects of her and flat and like try to work those into three different guys to be in different books yes uh and you know something similar is definitely <clears throat> going on in this story where like yeah we got this like weird old woman who is maybe a witch but then also maybe all of her apparently supernatural powers can be explained as the product of um a combination of like drugs and uh basically just like convincing people of stuff and being kind of like canny um it's actually in a weird way the same perspective on witchcraft that uh granny weatherwax uh describes in um the discworld books where it's like well yeah maybe once in a blue moon you're gonna do some actual fucking magic but the vast majority of being a witch is about knowing which plants will actually have certain effects on people and doing a bunch of spooky shit so that people actually believe that you can do things with herbs. Um, it reminds me of like a really, really old uh, meme of a kid is like the best part of the Xbox 360 isn't playing the games. It's telling everyone online that I did. <laughs> it's like the important thing about being a witch isn't doing the magic. It's making sure everyone believes that I did. <laughs> I mean, yeah, potentially, yeah. Um, and, like, so, you know, this, like, witch figure, someone who'll show up again. And also this thing where, like, we've got stuff that looks supernatural going on, but technically within the world of the story, there are actually totally, like, material explanations for everything. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be at least one point where a character kind of lays that out and is like, oh, it's not magic. Here's all the things that are happening. Um, but then you know, there are still going to be kind of moments where you're like, okay, but how did this thing happen if that's the case? Or, like, you're going to be like, okay, maybe it wasn't magic, but, like, what's the actual meaningful distinction between, like, a creepy old woman who lives in the woods and has her own agenda and can do things that no one else knows how to do and a literal actual witch with, mag with magic, you know? Um, yeah. That That sort of idea of, like, turning over what's kind of quote-unquote realistic and what's magic and like how much does that distinction matter 
And how much is that distinction just a thing that's in you, the reader, rather than in the story? That's just all over <laughs> Gene Wolfe's work later. Uh, and also mm -hmm. there's just like a very nice uh, priest uh, who likes to explain things and uh, who likes solving mysteries. Um, that's also a guy who's going to show up later. So, yeah. Love that. Oh, yeah. No, he's great. Fucking huge um, Silk fan over here. I was Googling this book and came across, I guess, possibly a um a biography of Gene Wolfe or some some a book about Gene Wolfe by um Joan Gordon uh that has like a write up and one of the chapters is about this book. I think I may have also found that when I was googling stuff last night. <clears throat> I I just love the first two sentences. The cover of the paperback edition of The Devil in the in the Forest does a curious thing. It misleads its potential readers into thinking that Gene Wolfe the science fiction writer has written a fantasy. <laughs> Yeah, it does do that. <laughs> now it also it also talks about listing uh, the Barrow Man, uh, an awesome spirit of a long dead but still worshipped warrior, as a main character. Actually, he only appears in a dream. I mean that, <laughs> and the Demark <laughs> it just goes into all the stuff that you mentioned about the back of the book just lying to you. Yeah, and yeah, it's funny. I mean, a lot of like back of the book blurbs do straight up lie right because they try to frame a book in a way that they think will be more appealing to people um i believe the back of the book also says something about like an awesome battle between good and evil and yes. that 100 percent <laughs> feels to me like they're being like oh what do people want in fantasy in fantasy novels they want an epic battle between good and evil right lord of the rings shit yeah slap that on there um which is very funny <laughs> but it's pretty good cover yeah, no, I think it's a great cover. I think the major thing that I think is cool about this book, and I think it's something that actually the cover gets across pretty well, is that it gives like a very tech, a very fully textured concept of what it might be like to live in a tiny medieval village on the edge of a forest sometime in the like early Middle Ages uh mm -hmm. and what it might be like to be like a teen and to have your life totally disrupted by this sudden violence um yeah like i can't say whether this book is quote-unquote historically accurate because i'm not like a medievalist um but what it is is like painstakingly world built mm -hmm. um i think historical fiction sometimes is involves just as much world building as any kind of like science fiction or fantasy book can um because it is all about building this world that is alien to you right i don't know anything for real about what it would have been like to live in a village like that um but this book does really like make me feel like that's a real place that i can imagine someone living in um and I think that's that's a really cool thing in a historical fiction. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I was trying to read a historical uh, fiction book not a month or two ago and tapped out because this one was in particular was too dense. But mm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, sometimes that can be difficult. Like, I, I think mm -hmm. there are times when, I mean, as with, like, a science fiction or fantasy novel, there are times when historical fiction gets so caught up in all the little details of this world 
that yeah. it becomes overwhelming and you're like, I don't, this is not actually interesting to me. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's a, that's a book I read. That was cool. Um, Seems cool. That's, uh, that's, I guess, all I have to say about things that I read between last recording and this one. I have been poking away at some books. I have slowed down a lot on reading lately because we bought the Xbox Series X. And um, I have, however, been playing a Hugo Award winning video game. Oh, Christ. They give Hugo Awards to video games now? What is it? Only one of them. Hades. Oh, yeah. Fuck. That is <laughs> Which... that is the video game that would win a goddamn Hugo. <laughs> I have an enormous amount of cynicism about the Hugos mm-hmm. because I've fucking been to Worldcon and I voted in the Hugos and it's very stupid. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm not actually that interested in talking about Hades too much on this podcast. I'm, obviously, I'm going to talk about it on Journal Updated, but it did make me th- think you know, I've never actually read Homer or anything. Yeah. I just kind of absorbed these stories and these characters. Uh, I'm getting distracted. Autumn is like double flipping off the TV as she uh, kills Theseus in the Minotaur. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Fuck Theseus. <laughs> Fuck that asshole. I've never played Hades. I don't really have a sense of what Theseus is like in, in Hades, but Fuck Theseus. <laughs> um I had never read Homer, but I did watch Clash of the Titans. And then in uh boy, I'm gonna guess, I'm gonna guess it's twenty eleven they remade Clash of the Titans. I think that's right. I think that's right. I'm just twenty ten. Shit. Okay, never mind. Liam Neeson was Zeus, I think. Anyway. I got an audiobook because M recommended a specific translation of the Odyssey. Um, I picked it up on Audible. The introduction is three hours long, and I'm not done with it yet. But we'll start the book soon. <laughs> yeah, that's a... Uh, you know how, like, when a book is super fucking long, people call it an epic? Uh-huh. This book is why. <laughs> I haven't gotten to the book part yet. I'm still in the, like... He, let me lay out exactly the, like, historical context for the traditions that led to this story and what these aspects of the story meant to the people who were telling the story so that you know why this thing or that thing has the stakes that it has or, like, has the importance that it has, which is very useful. And also, I want to hear about Odysseus eventually, so... <laughs> yeah, I... Okay, so I'm assuming that what you have... what You said that M recommended a specific edition or translation? Yes. Uh, I think the translator's last name is Wilson. I'm trying to pull up the sure the, the line chat, but um, I would not recommend listening through the entire introduction to an academic uh text, or I guess academic text is not the right word for this. What's the word I'm looking for? A critical edition of a classical text. Like what you've got here is. And this is going to be true of basically any version of the Odyssey, right? This is something that was produced by, like, scholars, you know, translating it very carefully and making a lot of anal- making a lot of scholarly decisions in that translation. 
And so there's going to be a ton of extra material like this introduction you're talking about. And I would say probably like 90% of the time, even when like experts, academics are reading a book like this, they don't read the fucking introduction. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Emily Wilson's translation, by the way. Um, But uh, yeah, I'm going to just get to the the story at some point. Be- mainly because I've had a book on my shelf for close to a decade, which is just a, a nice-looking version of the... I'm going to say the, the Aeneid is how I've heard it pronounced. Yeah, that's which right. Which is the, like, the, like Roman fanfic mm-hmm. of the Iliad. Yes. And I've had this on my shelf, and I've never actually read it because it's in, like... It's it's all in verse, and when I read something like that, I, my brain just like gets stuck in the rhythm, and I can't actually think about the words because I'm thinking about the rhythm of the words. So I haven't actually read it, but I wanted to read it. But I was like, well, I can't just do that. I got to start with the the regular ones, <sighs> the, the older ones first. Yep. So here I am listening to the Odyssey as an audiobook, uh, which do you find that I guess? Oh, sorry, go on. I just found it fitting to listen to it as an audiobook, considering it arises from like an oral storytelling tradition. Yeah. That's all. No, I think that's really cool. I definitely think listening to it as an audiobook is a really neat way to experience it. You mentioned that kind of um, like verse rhythms that you can essentially find them like distracting uh, or, or, or mm-hmm. that you can find that to be like the only thing that you can pay attention to. Do you find that that's less true with an audiobook? Uh, I mean, I haven't gotten to the oh, to the actual story part. Right, yet. of course. Yeah, you're the stuff you've been listening to has not been in verse. Okay, well, I. But yeah, like when I'm reading it on on the page, I'm just like, okay, I know that this line is not the end of a sentence, but it is the end of a rhyme. So I'm going to put a pause here, and then like have the the like that sort of rhythm completely dominate the pace of the words which maybe is the point but it also means that it's really difficult for me to like pay attention to the Mm. to the content yeah i guess yeah i think that um yeah well i i will be very curious to hear how this experience goes for you um i think that like in my experience when i've been reading verse aloud which i guess is not something i do that often but i mean for one thing i did it all the time in high school and college because we would constantly have like moments in class where we'd be like all right someone read this passage aloud or whatever um and i think that like reading verse reading like narrative verse well does kind of require not getting totally caught up in like the rhythm and rhyme so like if it's a whole sentence that extends over multiple lines you do kind of have to read it as a sentence and pause at the commas and and end the sentence at the periods Mm. and not pause at the ends of the lines if they're not like grammatically structured as pauses um right like you don't actually want to be reading a poem precisely in its rhythm every line because then you'll be like a tumpty 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 tum a tumpty tumpty yes, tumpty tumpty tum and every every line in my brain is like 
and it's like oh i somebody said jove i think uh yeah yeah oh well i i think that probably a good reader of an audiobook will know how to structure the the reading such that yeah such that the such that those um i guess kind of verbal like sound qualities are present but they're not the only thing you can hear i hope but i don't know what your experience is going to be really we'll see i know that um it's not written on the page this way but i do know that like in lord of the rings tom bombadil has a particular meter to everything he says that i like noticed but didn't like focus on and i was like oh this isn't being drawn attention to but i think there's a i think there's a pattern here just in like his word choice and everything yeah it turned out that that was correct just like in a way that was like oh i have no idea what the fuck this even is this isn't like a thing that i've heard of this is not it's not like iambic pentameter which is like a thing i've heard of this is like some other real thing that i just don't know about but i did pick up on it enough to know that something was happening yeah 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 well hopefully it's good and fun and i get to learn about um uh I mean, the the other funny thing about the introduction is that it's kind of just like, uh, <laughs> so when this happens in chapter 17 or whatever, it's like, oh, okay, so I just kind of know a lot of uh, uh, disparate plot points about what this story is broadly. Um, yeah. Even though I haven't <laughs> actually gotten into it yet. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that can be kind of funny about the way that, like, like, really canonical famous texts are introduced by academics is that there is just kind of this assumption that either you've definitely already read this before or if you haven't read it like you basically know what happens and what it's about um and i don't think that's like a bad presumption because i do Mm -hmm. think that because academic work involves returning to texts over and over again like if this is something if you're going to write a book on the odyssey right you're going to be rereading the odyssey or rereading sections of the odyssey just over and over and over again so i don't think it's a bad thing that um you know kind of i just think it's like a necessary part of how this stuff is structured that like when you're Mm -hmm. talking about something in depth you're talking about it to people who at the very least have read it before and potentially who are extremely familiar with it however it does lead to this kind of weird thing where, like, if you want to try to experience these kinds of stories in, like, a, a kind of modern, like, I want to follow the plot and get excited about the characters kind of way, sometimes it's hard mm-hmm. to do that. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't think the Odyssey is, like, ruined by knowing the plot or whatever, but it is kind of interesting that you can't not know a lot of it. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, if I had just skipped this and read the book, I might have been like, okay, I vaguely know that in, like, this mainly, I wouldn't have known this before doing Bag End, but like, okay, so I know that generally there are, you know, cultural, um, there's cultural significance to the concept of hospitality mm. that, like, I know, is is present in many different cultures. This is not a thing I would have like recognized before we started talking about Lord of the Rings and M bringing up how 
Tolkien is like writing a lot about that kind of thing happening all the time because um, they're constantly just running across guys and like having dinner with them uh, and stuff um that's the life take me back <laughs> um like i would not have had the um uh, the context the, the context and like the um i would not have known like the severity of what the what that means and what breaching it means mm. for a person if i hadn't uh and and like my point being that like just going into the book the the book you know the the, it's the a odyssey book. um <laughs> um without any of that i i would have still like you know gotten the story i just might have been like oh well this is happening yeah i this is i think this is a complicated thing to balance because context can be incredibly useful it can like sometimes lacking certain pieces of context can just genuinely make it impossible to understand something in like a an old piece of literature Mm -hmm. um but i also think it can be easy to feel totally overwhelmed by that and feel like you need to know everything about this historical context in order to like read it at all um and i think that's kind of paralyzing and not helpful yeah Um, yeah we'll we'll see how i feel about um homer if that is his real name (laughs) i mean (laughs) i feel like that's the question it was like a good 30 minutes of the introduction were about homer yeah yeah the question of like who was this supposed guy homer is definitely like a big scholarly one um it's you know i'm i'm really impressed by his uh writing chops considering his uh his behavior at the at the nuclear power plant does not really lend itself well to uh to that of an author but god <sighs> i have to wonder why they decided to name homer simpson after the like one of the foundational like authors of western civilization (laughs) i mean i don't know maybe it wasn't like they were trying to name him after homer maybe they were just like here's oh here's a cute name he's at home i i googled it and it's uh named after the father of one of the creators i think oh oh that's really cute actually um but at the same time even if there is that element where it's like oh he was named after a real person it's not like they didn't know who homer is yeah (laughs) anyway i'm sure there are dozens if not hundreds of gags in the simpsons about homeric writings or or poems Um, probably yeah i think a lot of (laughs) simpsons writers uh went to harvard so like yeah uh yeah i i go back and forth so much on like how much i want to put in the effort to get all the context for a piece of literature and how much i don't think i need to do that and i want to give myself the freedom to just fucking read things um yeah there's like sometimes all the context i have is like oh i read on wikipedia that this um like red harvest or foundation are like 
formerly serialized novels and that's why the structure feels a little weird sometimes but beyond that it's like oh it's a book i read it yeah yeah um and it definitely like becomes more and more complicated as you go back to like ancient literatures where it's like this is you know if you're reading red harvest or if you're reading moby dick these are from different historical time periods and they were written and published in ways that like no longer exist so it's not like it's not like there's zero relevant context but at the same time it's still like a way more familiar world than the world of homer um and like if melville walked into your job tomorrow you would be able to like get him a cup of coffee and like oh yeah small talk yeah yeah no that that's definitely true <laughs> i would i would definitely be able to get melville something to eat <laughs> that's very funny to imagine because there's literally a moment in the book where he like goes into a restaurant and gets a bunch of fish stew that he's very excited about <laughs> oh he he comes in because of the mermaid on the on the sign and he's like hello starbucks is this do you have I know you don't work at Starbucks. It's just well, um, it's also funny because he would be like, uh, "Excuse me, is this? Uh, are you related to the guy I used to know who's now dead, Starbuck?" And uh, <laughs> they would be like, uh, "No, sir, I don't know what you're talking about." No, sir, I'm from Cleveland. <laughs> I've never been to Nantucket. <sighs> I have a question for you, Mark. Yes. You want to talk about Mistborn? Yeah, all right. Let's do it. We read five chapters of Mistborn, sixteen through twenty. Um, Vin's not dead. It was. Huh? I said Vin's not dead. Vin's not dead. Yes. Uh, in case you were wondering, uh, the girl on the cover of the other two books in the series is also Vin. She does live. Uh, let's see. Chapter 16. <clears throat> let's see. Uh, Vin is waking up at the beginning of this chapter from two weeks of being completely out of it after her injuries in the previous adventure. She uh, talks to Lesterborns for a minute, who tells her that he has a new name, Spook. Um, because, I guess, Kelsier didn't like Lesterborns, so he gave him a new name. Yeah. Uh, what else? This, this summary is, as always, rather uh, light. So, we know that... Sezid is working on translating this book that Vin escaped Credit Shaw with. And he um, explains about keepers who remember things. And um, uh, Sezid in particular knows uh, a lot of languages. I don't remember the exact number. It's like 170 or just 70, something like that. Yeah. He knows a lot of languages. Um, he's fluent in over six million forms of communication, you might say. <laughs> um, and uh, also t- tells her about uh, the terrace sort of breeding 
programs, they're called. Um, because the terrorist culture is like... The Lord Ruler seems to hate terrorist people so much that out of all the peoples of what is now the Final Empire, uh, they are in particular um, sort of controlled to such an extent that most like terrorist men are born uh, and castrated immediately. And he has this grip on the on their like whole lives and uh that's a lot to drop in your fantasy heist book yeah i definitely will want to talk about that <laughs> but um i guess the only other what else happened? the only other thing in this chapter really is just kind of like updates on how stuff has been going uh with the with their whole uh rebellion plan um yes how like you know the the stuff that kelsier's been getting up to in the last couple weeks um vin starting to like starting to play the lady valette role again as as she starts to heal um right yeah and we get like her going around in a in a carriage just to be seen yep yep and like rping with lord renew yeah, who uh never breaks character. <laughs> He's so good. Yeah, yeah. Or at least he never breaks character in front of Vin. Yes. <clears throat> uh oh, and they have new um I think this is this chapter. They note that they uh have hired extra like servants that aren't part of their crew so, because it would be suspicious if nobody could uh, get their spies into Lord Renault's uh manor. So there are now people around the estate who are not in on everything, so they have to like keep up those those acts twenty four seven. Yeah, yeah. I think it may have been in a later chapter, but it's not like uh, irrelevant at this point. So I think it kind of makes sense to mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I think we also get. Um, I'm trying to see if this is where we talk about uh, the the book. Oh no, not yet. Okay. No, um, this is not the point at which Sazed kind of reveals what the book is. <clears throat> um. I honestly feel like the only thing in this chapter that is really of that much interest is mm-hmm. the big reveals about what keepers are and the lives that uh terrorismen lead. Um I mean there were a couple of th- moments where I was like, "Oh, this is an interesting thing that was said." But in terms of like big story mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Um He just uh he mentions that very few um there are very few terrorists left and the lord ruler's breeders control our reproduction no terrorist steward is allowed to have a family or even to bear children and Vin's like that sounds hard to like actually enforce and he says all terrorist stewards are eunuchs child i assumed you knew that yeah so eunuchs huh 
Um, so Unix. And also in the next couple paragraphs, uh, Vin remarks that like, oh, Sezid's like lack of taking offense at my ignorance about this uh, must be exactly what the breeders want from the terrorists. Ta- docile, even-tempered stewards. This is like a real historical thing to some extent and also perhaps more so than like a real historical thing it's also like a uh fictional trope of like the sort of decadent emperor who surrounds himself with eunuch servants because Mm. eunuchs are considered to be like ideal servants um right the kind of justifications for this uh both in fiction and in real life are i don't know i guess a little variable um sometimes there's the idea that uh if a like kind of a high attendant to like you know a ruler is not able to have a family of his own that will mean that his loyalties are not divided, right? Like he's not uh, motivated right. to try to get his own children into positions of power because he can't have any children. Um, yeah, this is uh, not to draw too weird of a comparison. Like the Star Wars is also doing this with the clone troopers. Oh yeah, no, totally. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this is just like a trope in fiction. Mm-hmm. It shows yeah. up in a lot of different places. Um, it it's not one that I ever thought about until I started like. Once I realized it, I was like, oh, shit, that's, that is everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it has happened in real places, so I'm not trying to be like, yeah, this is just, like, a creepy thing that people do in, in books. Um, <laughs> but it is kind of a thing where, like, uh, a lot of fiction is kind of, like, obsessed with the idea of these, like, eunuchs as like these weird court figures um there's often an idea that they are kind of uniquely schemy and like yeah. treacherous um which doesn't seem to be what's going on with Sazed, but i don't think it's totally distinct from this idea that Sazed is kind of uh like uniquely uh knowledgeable and kind of like socially smooth right because like says it is somebody who in every situation we've seen him in he is extremely good at talking to people and learning more from the person he's talking to than that person is learning from him and like uh kind of subtly advancing his own agenda while appearing to be like subservient right yeah i definitely he's also yeah he because like we see it, and in the scenes where we go to the balls, he's always going off to spy on the other uh, stewards and, and, and servants. Yep, yep. <clears throat> I definitely think that the idea that uh, being castrated specifically makes all terrorist stewards, including Sazed, docile is a lot. Um... I feel like the implication was that they've bred them to be docile, not that like the castration itself made them docile. Well, what Vin says but- about how Sazed never gets angry about anything is probably a function of his ellipsis condition. So to me, that's saying that he doesn't get angry because mm, okay. he doesn't have any balls. Um, right. Which is hilarious, because Vin doesn't have any balls. 
and Vin gets angry. Vin's killed people. Yeah. Like, (laughs) there. yeah, so that's weird and silly to me. Also, I don't totally understand how this uh, breeding program works when the majority of the people it produces are castrated. Although, of course, we have no idea what happens to, you know, terrorist people who do not have testicles when they are born. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if, like, something we don't know anything about that has not even been mentioned is the idea of whether there are female uh, terrorist stewards. It seems from what uh it is saying that there couldn't possibly be um but you'd think that if all terrace stewards were men or like you know were men within vin's framework you'd think that that would have been something that came up when she kind of thought about terrace stewards as like the consummate servants uh but it didn't come up at all yeah which is weird um I'm sure we'll find out more about this breeding program later, and I'm sure it will be super fucked up, um, because yep. it's a breeding program. That's a fucked up thing to do to humans. Um, yeah, and uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know that Brandon. There are certain topics that when Brandon starts writing about them, it's like, okay, where are you going? What is this? Yeah, uh, and. Um, uh, to me, sometimes this is yeah. To me, this honestly feels like a weird because, like, we've talked before about how the way that the uh, state of like slavery that Ska live in has been portrayed in a way that is like weirdly sensationalized, and it's almost like attempting to make it somehow actually like worse and scarier than like real world like chattel slavery. Mm-hmm. I. Yeah. Mentally, I specifically am comparing it to, like, American plantation slavery, because literally they're working plantations, like, connections yeah. are obvious. Um, but, like, there's this weird effect where, because he's, like, really trying to make everything super over the top, and it's like, oh, it's not just that, like, masters sexually assaulting their slaves is, like, basically an institutionalized part of the system, but that's the case, and then also they always murder them, <laughs> and it's like, all right, um... And this feels kind of, yeah, this feels kind of similar to that to me because it's like, oh, well, we've got our regular slaves, but then we've got our even worse slaves who are in a breeding program and who are all castrated. And isn't even that, isn't that even more disturbing? And it's like, well, I mean, American slave masters also engaged in essentially breeding programs because like. Mm -hmm. separating families right and like just controlling the the family life and the reproduction of enslaved people was like a big part of american slavery um and it was a big part of american just like life post-slavery even yes that's definitely also true um and like it's not the the thing is that it almost feels like in order for Brandon to imagine oppression, he's got to put all the levers to 11 and make it like the scariest possible shit. 
And it's like, do you realize that that real things happen? <laughs> it almost feels like he was at a writer's workshop and someone said, okay, this is kind of hewing close to historical like atrocities. If you played it up, though, it might be so like preposterous as to be more acceptable to a reader. He was like, oh, I got you. Don't worry. I'll, I'll crank it up. <laughs> yeah, potentially. Um, yeah, it... I also think that something that's very strange to me about this exchange is the way that Sazed talks about his people and kind of like their character as a people. Mm -hmm. Um, because on the one hand, I mean, he basically literally says, yeah, we are a servant people. Uh, yeah, we are eager to do as we are told quick to seek subjugation. Like he's basically saying that they have been at the very least, he's saying that they have been trained into like a mentality of servitude where that's like what they yes. want and what they seek out. And it's even what he wants and what he seeks out, right? Like in this rebellion, he's taken on like a servant role. Um, and there's, I think an implication here, although I don't think it's ever directly stated by Sazed that not only is this uh like weak subservient character, a matter of like intensive training from birth, but also maybe is a product of this like eugenic breeding program. Um, and I think that's like absolutely a disgusting thing to put in your novel. Like the idea yeah. that you could by selectively breeding humans, create humans who are like morally and emotionally weak and who sort of need to be servants. Like, Oh my God, that's Nazi shit. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't like seeing that treated as though it might be kind of true, um, even though there is this fig leaf of like, no, 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 perhaps it's just the training. Um, and and we don't have, this is a Vin POV. So it's not like, say Zed will like, say something and then think to himself, some bitter thought about like, oh yeah, that's, or some like, resentment towards this this like, system or anything. It's just... He's just saying things, and then Vin is we're in Vin's head, so we're just like accepting the information and and con taking it in. Yeah, and there's this weird thing where you know um, Vin is basically arguing like, "Wait a minute, Sazed, you are a brave person. You are a rebel. Like, what are you talking about?" And he's like, "Ah, uh, I'm not as much of a rebel as you think. I'm not really that brave." And like, <laughs> if it weren't for this literally eugenic context. It might actually be kind of charming where he's like, he's saying like, oh, well, yes, I did save your life, but it wasn't really that impressive that I did that, like downplaying his own accomplishments. That can be a nice character beat, but he's doing it in the context of being like, oh, yes, it wasn't that impressive that I saved your life because I am a servant by nature. And it's like, what? Kelsier told me to look after you, so I was really just following orders. You know, I, I, it wasn't me. Yeah, it's but uh, it's weird. It's it, weird. There are times that says it almost feels like he's supposed to be C three PO. I mean, yeah, no, he is. He's literally because <laughs> he's like one. I the memory. Mm -hmm. You know, he the has languages. the sort of like yeah the languages, and he's like, um, he's very in, uh, uh, knowledgeable about etiquette. And uh, 
uh, like the social cues around him. And like C-3PO, he is a little faggy. Um, a little bit. Also like C-3PO, um, he is a, like human property. And we're fine with the uh-huh. fact that our sympathetic protagonist guy is basically still treating him that way. <laughs> I I mean, 3PO doesn't have balls. <laughs> like, one of the things that is really weird, I think, and, and strange about all this is that, like, now that we've learned some of the full details of, like, just how horrific it is that terrorist men are made to be stewards made to be these like consummate servants i think it makes the fact that kelsier is basically totally happy to treat sazed as a steward really gross like so you want Mm -hmm. you want the ska to like expand their minds and understand that they can be more than what they've been told to be and like you want vin to like learn all these new powers and not just feel the need to like live her life as she's always been forced to live it but you are totally fine with sazed living as your steward and Vin's steward and like obeying your commands to the letter because that's like what he's been conditioned to do like Kelsier's fine just using that this to me is actually like the darkest Kelsier has gotten mm-hmm. and I don't really think the narrative understands that um no because it's it's all framed in the context of we're, we're undercover we're pretending to be noblemen we're pretending to live in luxury we're pretending to have servants yeah and it's also <laughs> i also think there's kind of an element here where it's like well uh sazed sazed wants to direct his talents towards a a the goal of this rebellion but he also fundamentally wants to serve um like he said something chapters ago i think basically when he was introduced about how like uh a terrorist steward without a master to serve is like a you know um like a soldier without a weapon or maybe it was like a craftsman without his tools he he basically framed it as though like well this is my job this is what i do and that's what i want to do and i'm happy with that i need a master because that's how i can fulfill my function like stewards don't get to be ronin <laughs> no you gotta have a guy yeah yeah and like i did think that that particular line was a little bit interesting because the way that says was was framing it was like yeah this human being whom i serve he's like a tool to me so that's an interesting mm-hmm. there are interesting implications there but now that we know just how much says and all of his people are literally treated as tools as objects yeah. It doesn't really feel like I don't feel good about it. Those those pieces don't really seem to mesh with each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah. We'll see. I you know, I'm not fundamentally opposed to a kind of like sneaky uh polite uh servant who perhaps is more than he appears and i'm not actually even opposed to that character being a eunuch even though i think there are a lot of weird things going on with the whole literary figure of like the the servant eunuch um but yeah i just don't like the way this is coming together here yeah i did just notice one thing that's in this chapter that i think we should mention in terms of plot stuff uh, which is that uh, in this conversation with Sazed, um, Vin also asks who betrayed Kelsier, um, like that got him sent to the pits. 
And Sazed says that nobody knows for sure, but most of the crew are assuming it was Mare, Kelsier's wife. That's Mm -hmm. a bombshell. Like, we did not... Nothing like that had been, I think, even slightly implied before, because all we've heard about Mare is that Kelsier loves her so much, and that she was sent to the pits with him, and that she died, and it's so tragic. Um, Yeah. Uh, and it's very interesting to me that Sazed is like, I don't believe it. I don't want to believe that Mare could have done that because, uh, you know, um, I don't want to believe that anyone would betray you. But I am going to tell you all the plausible reasons why it could have been her. Right. So, interesting kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth there, you know. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Right, she says, my brother said that anyone would betray you even if they had, anyone would betray you if they had the right chance and good enough motive. Sazed frowned, even if such a thing were true, I would not want to live believing it. That's actually also an interesting statement from Sazed, because I think I've talked before about how his attitude towards the religions that he keeps the memory of is kind of strange, because it's like, Mm -hmm. he seems to just be totally agnostic about all of them, and he's just like, well... Any of these could be true. You could believe in any of them, Vin. Just pick a belief that works for your life. Um, And that, I guess, does seem to be a consistent part of his character, is that, like, he doesn't really care that much about whether a person's broad kind of religious or philosophical beliefs are accurate. He just thinks that your beliefs should, I guess, make you happy um, or possibly make you, like, effective. Um... Like, it's not totally clear to me in this context whether he's saying, I wouldn't want to live believing that because it's so sad, or rather, I wouldn't want to live believing that because it would make my life difficult. It would make it hard to get anything done. I don't really know. Yeah. I I like Seizet a lot. I think he's my favorite character in the the series, so yeah, um, I'm excited to get more Seizet stuff. I like him too. I do. Um, I like, even though I'm, I'm frustrated with the, the like, uh, kind of edginess of what's mm-hmm. up with Terrace Stewards. Um, I do think he's compelling. Um, and I'm excited to learn more about him. Um, I'm excited for whatever he's gonna, I'm excited for whatever he's going to do with this book. He's going to slice all the pages up into strips and paste them at the top of each chapter of Miss Born the Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> well, yes, that is clearly the case. Yes. <laughs> um, God, what if this book, what if this whole book was like written by Sazed? <laughs> I think that would be really cool. Um, yeah. But I don't think it is. <laughs> Um, uh, chapter 17 in fact opens on the discussion of the book yes uh, actually it opens on Vin being like wow plants are weird yeah yeah she's looking but... at the garden <laughs> but then we get the um, it, the description of where is it well there's I just this mention I guess of how Sazed is reading the book all the time um and he's not really giving her any of the, like, lessons that he was before because he's so busy with the book. Um, but he does tell everyone, says it, it's like, okay, so here's the deal with this book. It's a journal, and I'm pretty sure it's a journal 
penned by the Lord Ruler himself, or rather the man who became the Lord Ruler. Um, yeah. Tells about his life just prior to the final battle at the Well of Ascension. Oh. I wonder what that second book's about. Uh, narration of people he met. Wait, um, does this... I hmm? don't... Is that really in this chapter? I'm just flicking through and not seeing it. Um, it's the, the scene after she's looking at the gardens. Huh, alright. Because um, everyone is here and she's... This is also where she's re- realizing, oh, everything's changed in two weeks. Like, yes. Kelsier is more thoughtful. Uh, Yaden is like, cleaned himself up. Yeah, the, she's she's definitely noticing like changes in the crew, and it does kind of feel like maybe we're building towards this crew actually maybe being able to effectively accomplish the thing they're trying to do. Um, maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Oh, yeah, you're right. This is totally where that discussion happens. I'm sorry. I don't know why I didn't see it. Yeah. Um, it's very funny to me that um, there seems to be this sense that um like uh, i think it's very funny that sasid refers to this book he's found as mundane when it's like uh-huh. this is the personal diary <laughs> of god <laughs> like like in okay in the literal actual bible in the real world like in the gospel mm-hmm. sometimes there's this thing called rubrication where the words that were supposed to have been actually spoken by Jesus are highlighted yes. in red because there's like the sense that this is like the most important bit. Like this is not just what this evangelist saw and like wrote down from his experience. And this is not just like what people said about Jesus after he was dead. This is literally the word of God. So this part we're going to highlight in red. So you pay attention. And this is a whole book of that. (laughs) This is so important. This is probably like one of the most religiously significant texts that exists in the final empire. Um, So I think it's incredibly funny that Sazen says that it's not a religious text, that it's mundane. (laughs) (laughs) Well, mate... I, I have forgotten. It's been a little extra time since we, our last episode, but I don't remember whether Sazed treats the like understands the, the religion of the Lord Ruler differently from how he treats the religions that he has in his memories. Yeah, I mean that makes sense, right? Like because obviously the religion of the Lord Ruler does not require preservation, um, mm-hmm. and and also certainly you know this is not actually. This, I say this is like an incredibly significant religious text, but it's not a text that is made public. This is not something, you know, it's a huge secret. It was kept in this big secret chamber. Um, so it's not mm-hmm. something that the Lord Ruler wants to be a part of his religion as it is like understood and practiced by the people of his empire. Um, right. And, you know, Caesar does kind of point out that it doesn't really make sense as like a book that you could say oh this was like written after the fact to like uh you know promote the idea of the lord ruler as a god because it really does seem like it's just kind of a personal journal there's a lot of like mundane details 
Uh, it doesn't really give a sense of him as like a sort of singularly great hero. He seems really conflicted. Um, now I will say having read all those excerpts, it totally feels like it could be a propaganda piece. (laughs) (laughs) Like the type of conflicts that he has are like, I wonder if I'm strong enough to take on this awesome task. Ah, uh, if the people knew that I doubted. <laughs> and it's like, this does not actually make him seem less heroic. Uh, but but I, I can understand that the Lord Ruler does actually have a public persona of total invulnerability. Um, so I can understand yeah. how actually this would be a problem for him. Um, it's just mm-hmm. funny because the idea of like what makes someone not a hero is like having any amount of like concern over his own uh capacity um and it's like i don't really think uh you know frodo is a hero ass hero there's really Mm -hmm. no argument you can possibly have about that and frodo is someone who struggles right yeah that's part of the whole arc you gotta watch the struggles so you can root for them yes yes exactly um but yeah like i said i'm very interested to see what says it gets out of this book um whether there's any big reveals about the secrets of the lord ruler or just i don't know um obviously the book's important and it's going to be important going forward so yeah <sighs> After that, Finn picks a dress. Finn does pick a dress. That's just which. Oh, that might be the next. She she's like kind of considering going to the ball. I guess this is not actually when the dress picking scene happens. Sorry, um, but uh, yeah, no, she like considers a bunch of dresses basically. Um, she's starting to like them though. Yeah, yeah. The um, <laughs> she's Vin's having fun uh, going to these balls, um, which I think is cute. You know. Um. Yeah. Oh, this also. Um, right before the um, the book talk, she does have that scene where Renault is like, uh, "Would you like some like real earrings that look nice?" And she's like, "No, I have to keep this earring." This one's this one's mine, and I'm keeping it. Yeah. Uh, we'll get back to that in a little bit. Oh boy, will we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then she also kind of talks to Kelsier about how the world used to be totally different, and there used to be plants and flowers. Yeah, we have like a picture of a flower that's uh, folded up on this really old paper, and Kelsier's like, "Yeah, flowers used to be real." I want to bring those back. I want to make the world pretty again. That's what Mare was always talking about. She was really into, like, records of what the world used to be like. Yeah, so I've been asking for, like, the entire goddamn show, where did Kelsier get this strong sense he has of the world before the Ascension? Where did Kelsier get this, like, longing for blue skies and green plants and a lack of ash? Because he's never known Mm -hmm. that. And this right. is basically the explanation for that that I guess I'm going to get, which is that he got it from Mare, um, because this is what Mare was obsessed with, and she, like, 
collected these types of documents. Um, and yeah. also, uh, he says she introduced him to Sazed. So presumably she also got some of this information just by talking to Sazed, who has these right. like ancient memories. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's... It's, and, uh, like, there's also clearly, like, um, that association means that, like, when he's thinking about the former beauty, the, the lost beauty of the world, he's also sad about losing her as well. Yes, yeah, that's clearly going on. Um, I do have to say that this is a little, well, hmm. So in terms of the emotional investment that Kelsier has in this idea of the world before the Ascension, um, I do think that in a certain sense this explains it, because as you say, it's not just that he has this sort of distant longing for a world that never was, it's that he has a longing for a real person he knew who cared about that world. Um, yeah. But uh, <clears throat> I also, like, I... I still think it doesn't actually make a lot of sense for the thousand-year-old documents that Mare was able to collect as, like, a ska thief. It, it's just weird. It's weird that it's she weird. It's weird that she had this paper in the first place. Um, it's weird that it's, like, preserved well enough that you can, uh, like... Un, like understand the picture clearly that it still has color it's weird that mm -hmm. uh kelsier keeps it in his fucking breast pocket like if i, I were says it i would be so mad about that <laughs> i feel like this paper might not be a thousand years old but might be like you know a 40 year old depiction of a thousand year old thing if yeah, that, makes sense. that would make a certain amount of but sense, but it's not. They don't really like get into it, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess I just, uh, I, I just like this has been a thing that we've talked about before. How there seems to be this sort of like just presumption that the way things were before the ascension, which is to say, when they were more familiar to real world readers, right? Right. That was obviously better, and mm -hmm. I'm not saying I don't understand that at all. Like it does make sense, uh, because like uh because you know uh the stars when they're able to see the stars those are beautiful uh this image of a flower i'm sure it's beautiful too um but kelsier's longing does not feel to me like the longing of a person who is dreaming of stories he's heard that cannot possibly be real to him because they're so unlike anything he's ever experienced. Kelsier's longing feels like somebody who was transplanted from the real world into this fantasy setting and was like, oh god, this is all wrong. Um, uh -huh. Kind of like the reader. Yes, yes, like the reader in that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's also this part where she talks to him about the betrayal. Mm -hmm. And she's like... Or he, he says that even if she did betray me, I would rather keep loving her than to um, lose that and be, like, more suspicious of the world. Yeah. Um, it's... And then, then that immediately gets, like, 
subverted into a discussion of snapping, which <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I do think it's inter- interesting to highlight a few of the kind of details of how things went down when Kelsier and right. Mare were caught, because apparently they were personally caught by the Lord Ruler, and he thanked Mare for betraying Kelsier, which Kelsier at the time actually found kind of convincing. He says, His words, spoken with such an eerie sense of honesty, mixed with the way that the plan was set up, well, it was hard to believe Mare. Um, so he did actually kind of think when he was sent to the pits that Mare had betrayed him, and part of his reason for believing that was the word of the Lord Ruler. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, he's like, well, on the other hand, she always insisted she didn't do it, and she also got sent to the pits, so who knows. Um. And that was when I snapped. When yes. she died, I snapped. And she's like, you went mad? No, you know, like snapping. Like allomancy? <laughs> okay, here's our new... I'm going to capitalize this word for you, Vin. Okay, sna- so snapping yeah. <laughs> is uh, when something intense, something almost deadly, a traumatic event... Um, the philosophers say a man can't command the metals until he has seen death and rejected it. Yeah, that's a weird claim to me, because does that mean, like, there's there's a ton of noble mistings and misborns, we've been told. So does that mean all the nobles are, like, going through intense, like, experiences with death as well? Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating. I guess we'll see. Yeah. Um, also, it's very funny that it's capitalized because the snap is the in-universe name for when Thanos killed half of everything in the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe. Yeah, I, I so. think it, I, I agree. It's kind of silly. And it's also like, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I throughout this book have found the capitalization of formal allomantic terms a little silly because like i don't know let's say carpenters in the real world right they've got all kinds of specific terms for specific types of tools or specific processes that you can use that people who aren't carpenters don't really know anything about and they don't use those words in the same precise way right uh Mm. but they don't capitalize all those words to indicate (laughs) that they're special and different (laughs) um it it feels uh it feels designed not for allomancers in the world to use these words, but for readers to understand mm. that these words are special. Yeah. Um uh, and then we get the like looking at the camera and saying Finn, you're like a daughter to me. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. He's like, man. Mare and I never had children, but I wish we had maybe a daughter. Maybe a daughter with dark hair and a stubborn personality. Wink, wink, (laughs) wink. Anyway, I don't want to be responsible for something happening to you, Vin. (laughs) I I almost feel... Because, like, something that I was thinking is that... I, I don't think that the book is in any way laying this implication. However, something that a person could reasonably take from certain parts of the story, certain passages, is that 
there's a romantic tension between Vin and Kelsier, right? Hmm. Um, because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, characters in stories, I think especially young women, young, like, girls in stories often have, like, romantic feelings towards their mentors. Yeah. Um, and, like, also, Kelsier has this huge emotional hole left by the death of his wife. And I think he is very clearly placing Vin in that place, right? He Mm, is putting all of his feelings about having someone in the world who understands him and whom he wants to protect. He's putting all of that onto Vin. Um, Yeah, definitely. uh, And so this, this little bit where it's like incredibly explicit that Kelsier sees her as a daughter figure and even specifically almost thinks of her as the daughter he never had with Mare, uh, very much feels like it's like, all right, I need to be really clear about this, guys. It's not <laughs> romantic. It is paternal, okay? And no, those things could never have a weird overlap. Never before in fiction has a man ever had complicated paternal slash romantic feelings towards a woman that he is teaching how to do stuff. It's fine. This is 2005. Ten years later, Brandon Sanderson was like, oh, Last of Us was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like it's it's just i don't know it's funny um i'm not like trying to criticize the book and say it's problematic mm-hmm. um i think kelsier as a father figure to vin is charming and i like it um yeah there's just a certain feeling of like all right guys we got to get this straight <laughs> just so you know i'm going to look you in the eye and tell you this is the thing <laughs> yeah um, and then it's ball time Oh, yeah. Boy, oh, boy, is it ball time. Great, great chapter. It's great. I agree with Vin. I like these balls more and more. I'm excited to see Elan Venture. I'm um, also excited to see <laughs> Ellen Venture. Um, every time Ellen is not on screen, I'm asking, where is Ellen Venture? And so is Vin. <laughs> he shows up at the party and comes over to her table and drops a pile of books on it (laughs) so that she doesn't even have room for her dinner and she's like um excuse me what what is the line um she says something um like what is it that you do when you don't have me to bother (laughs) yeah what did you do at these parties before you had me to pester she asked in an annoyed tone uh, he doesn't answer. I think the answer is that he just was fucking bored. <laughs> <laughs> he was reading in the balcony. Yeah, but he clearly finds pestering Vin to actually be more fun than reading, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Clearly just none of these other girls are interesting enough for him. Um, although... Well, Vin's not like other girls. Uh, it's so true. Although I do have to say, um... Uh, it is later in this chapter, right? Um that uh we get to meet his fiance uh lady his, shan hilarial possibly like, from in his words maybe my fiance we haven't really texted his <laughs> perception former fiance yeah that's an interesting <laughs> thing for me because i feel like normally in like uh you know i guess like hereditary nobilities uh you know arranged marriages between children where it's expected that, like, okay, 
technically they're not actually going to get married for a while, but like everybody yeah. knows they yeah. are affianced and that means they're Ooh. together, you know, they are betrothed. Uh, mm -hmm. Usually that's a pretty big deal in these types of cultures. Um, usually it wouldn't be the kind of thing where it'd be like, eh, I mean, yeah, but it's kind of been a while since anybody talked about it. So I think it's not really a thing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like it's <laughs> we never broke up but like we haven't hung out in like three weeks <laughs> yeah um i kind of get the sense that shan is very clear that they are still engaged <laughs> yes shan is great i fucking love shan i love vin's <laughs> interactions with shan she's so mean she's so domineering so. and it's so easy for her yes and uh frankly like okay i can believe that ellen doesn't love spending time with her because she probably doesn't really tolerate his bullshit <laughs> but it's so clear to me that part of what he is doing is engaging in a it, at the same time as he's pestering Vin in the way that gets the most under Vin's skin, he is also, by doing that, pestering Shan in the way that yes. most gets under Shan's skin. It's, like <laughs> It's really convenient for him that he can... That anything he does that would piss off his dad will also piss off his fiance. Yeah, he he's just got, like, a smorgasbord of ways to annoy the important people around him. And he's loving it. It's great. Um... <laughs> I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting here reading my books. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I definitely, like, uh, think that, like, Shan is, is clearly pretty angry in this scene because it seems like she's kind of on the back foot, you know? Like, Ellen's little move here is making things hard for her, and so she's trying to reassert herself. But I feel like Shan is also enjoying her, enjoying herself. Mm -hmm. Um, like... She's just constantly dunking on Vin, and Vin can't respond, and I think she's enjoying exercising that power, and I think she's also enjoying uh, exercising a different kind of power over Elend, like, you know, mm -hmm. demonstrating to him, like, hey, you can't just go flirt with some random girl that you found and not think that I'm going to have a response, Elend. Uh... And, of course, she's doing this little subterfuge with his books. Yes. So she has uh, Vin. She pulls Vin away from her table to talk to her. She has all these, like, you will address me as Lady Shan or perhaps your ladyship. Uh, it's like, you really are a dull-minded thing, aren't you? She's just, like, so mean. It's and, delicious. And, <laughs> um, and Vin notices, oh, her, like, servant is over there messing with Ellen's books. I should interfere with that. Um, and so she makes an excuse to go back to her table. Um, she's uh, supposed to, her, her steward is supposed to meet her at the table and won't be able to find her. Um, which, you know, shoes the, the servant away and she gets back to the books and she's like, well... I should probably check to see if there's anything fishy about these books, actually. Uh, if uh, if they got Shan's attention. Maybe there is something here. And she finds 
a really dense book um, that she like. No, this is the one that she was reading earlier, not this one. Um, she she found like a a book with a lot of text on big pages. She's like, oh, how the fuck are you supposed to read all this? But then she finds um, a, a book that is labeled as um, Weather Patterns of the Northern Dominance. But inside is a bunch of like criticisms of the Lord Ruler's government and the way that he runs his empire. She's like, oh, that's weird. Why is Eland Venture reading subversive literature? Ooh. It's an interesting critique of the final empire because it's very, like, convinced of the uh, uh, ideology of the final empire. It just yeah. thinks that the Lord Ruler is not actually living up to his hype. Mm-hmm. One would think that now, with a single immortal governor, society would finally have an opportunity to find stability and enlightenment. It is the remarkable lack of either attribute in the final empire that is the Lord Ruler's most grievous oversight. So this book is like, damn, I really thought having uh, an immortal worldwide god king would be amazing, and that everything would be stable and enlightened. But it's not. (laughs) Lord Ruler kind of mid, actually. I'm I'm also very curious what this author means. I mean, well, so lack of stability makes a certain amount of sense because one of the things mm-hmm. the text refers to is like just a bunch of things that have happened in the near past of when this book was written. I don't Do we find out later when this book was written? Uh possibly. We get some context, but I don't remember. Anyway, exactly. the things the book refers to is the near past. Such blunders as the massacre at Devonex, the revision of the Deepness Doctrine, and the relocation of the Renates peoples. So, we don't know what any of those are, but apparently the book is willing to say those are just obvious blunders. Um, Mm -hmm. And at least two of them, the massacre and the relocation, those sound like wars. Or at least armed events (laughs) of some kind. Violence, right? Um, Because uh, certainly a massacre is that. And then Typically speaking, when a quote-unquote relocation of a people mm-hmm. is usually a form of ethnic cleansing. Um, yeah. So, all right. The Empire has been engaging in some kind of, like, violence that I guess maybe this author considers to be instability. Um, but it's interesting to me that it also considers the Empire to be unenlightened. Uh, I don't really know what that means at all. Um, I don't know what this author thinks the like kind of knowledge of the empire should be that it isn't um yeah it, it it's just it's a very interesting couple of paragraphs a very interesting take on what's wrong with the final empire yeah um and also it, it talks about like most of these uh Errors have been successfully covered up and can only be found in the metal mines of Farrakhamis or in the pages of banned texts. Which is funny because in the next chapter we find out that this book is not actually banned. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. This does seem to be like, it's kind of, you know, um, it, it's not actually something that Illand Venture would not be legally permitted to own. 
Although it does right. seem like it could be kind of a social problem for him. Or like it would at least be a little controversial. Um, yeah. If sure. it was found out that specifically Eland Venture is reading this book, maybe. Um, yeah, uh, like that's uh, an observation Kelsier makes. That, wow, would he really be so stupid as to carry it with him? Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, uh, oh, sorry. I'm very interested in exactly what the nature of Eland Venture's, uh, you know, um, politics is. Because he's clearly mm-hmm. got, he is clearly part of some kind of little circle of, you know, intellectuals who have critiques of uh, the final empire. Um, and in that later chapter where they talk more about this scene, uh, Kelsier and Vin have very different perspectives on what the nature of those politics are mm-hmm. of, of like what Eland Venture really believes. Um, and I'm definitely curious to see where that goes. Yeah. Uh, one detail that we passed over mm. is that Vin starts telling people that Ellen is just there to like watch over her at the dance mm, as like yes. an older brother figure, um, which has rippling consequences in later chapters, <laughs> but also serves as an introduction so that we know that Ellen is twenty one. Uh huh. I did highlight that. I was like. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is the note that I took? I wrote Brandon. No, I <laughs> <sighs> uh, didn't have to. Brandon. Not, yeah, like especially because Ellen acts like he's sixteen. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. The the Vin notices that basically, um, no one is asking her to dance because essentially everyone thinks that Ellen has kind of staked this claim on her. By, like, mm-hmm. sitting at her table and stuff. Um, and he says that it's like, at, sometimes you may end up, like, going to the dance with one guy and, like, dancing only with that guy for that evening. And then you'll be, like, hanging out with him and his guys. And the, then you'll really get the gossip. And yeah. Like, dance with only one guy? That's weird. Yeah. Um, but uh, she's able through this little, like, oh, he's a friend of my family. He's just showing me around. She's able to, you know kind of uh get people to ask her to dance uh she also does some very i would say uh skillful maneuvering to try to get him to ask her to dance uh because like they have this little exchange where she's uh kind of saying like oh you know dancing's actually kind of nice um and uh, at one point, he's just straight up like, it's unladylike to ask a man to dance, you know. And she's like, oh, I wasn't asking you to dance. I was just kind of talking about how dancing is nice, but I don't really want to dance with you. <laughs> and I think that's cute. Obviously, sooner or later, this <laughs> motherfucker is going to ask her to dance and it's going to be Obviously. great. Can't it's wait for that. wonderful. <laughs> <sighs> and then Shan is going to shoot lasers out of her eye. <laughs> oh my god, yes. Oh, it'll be great (sighs) shan is like she's the evil girl boss princess (laughs) oh yeah she's a soother also um yes she tries to soothe vin's emotions um it's really funny that vin comes to that conclusion and then we have other chapters where other characters also come to that conclusion just through like completely different means yeah yeah it it, it's uh 
it's sort of unfortunate. I mean, this is explicitly talked about in the narrative that basically most of the stuff that Vin learned at this party was actually things that like Sazed or other members of the crew already knew and mm-hmm. kind of knew more about than she knew. So this whole like Vin gathering information by posing as a noble woman thing, you know, it's clearly still in the early stages. It's not really getting anything that good. But on the other hand, they know that. So But they also she does get the one new information, which is that um Ellen is hanging out with the sons of I'm gonna do this from memory, Techiel and Hastings. Is that it, right? It was Leckel and Hastings, I'm sorry. Leckel. Shit. Yeah, he's I think it's it's pretty clear to me that uh Ellen has some kind of little circle of like uh, you know, yeah. young noble subversives. Uh, you know, I don't know how subversive they really are, but um he's got buddies whom just hanging out with them because they're political rivals of his father, or or their fathers are political rivals of his father, I guess. Just yeah. hanging out with them is a little subversive, and then also like one of them is just like grabbing his books as they walk around, and so like I'm guessing these are also guys who like to read a lot of books. Maybe they've read this book about how the final empire is bad maybe i don't know maybe maybe they're out there reading lenin god and being like oh oh scary <laughs> yeah yeah um i think that's the end of this chapter well there's one more thing in this chapter that i think is worth mentioning which is this uh, murder that vin witnesses Right, I forgot about the murder. Yeah, so on her way out of the party, um, the, she witnesses, like, uh, some soldiers uh, who've captured a young ska boy. Um, and they're like, oh, this boy tried to beg from one of the noblemen. Um, and the guard captain is like, oh, okay, yeah. Um, and then the way that they deal with this uh, just extremely, like, matter-of-factly, is to take the boy, like, sounds like basically five feet out into the mists. So, like, yeah. hidden from the direct sight of the noble people, but, like, not that far away, not that hidden, and just straight up stabs him, or sl- slits his throat. Um, yeah. And, like, Vin's reflection on this is, like, this is... First, she's like, oh, he's, they slaughtered him like an animal. And then she's like, oh, wait, no. This is even more demeaning than what you would do to an animal. Because you wouldn't slaughter a pig in a courtyard outside a fancy party. Like, that would actually be kind of... That that would be kind of déclassé. But this, apparently, is just, like, nothing. Like, yeah. this, is, this is like stepping on an ant. Um, this ends up making a later scene even weirder because she's like ellen must just not know the way that the scar treated yeah she's really convinced that this is like um like she she finds it she's just like finds this really shocking and finds it hard to comprehend that these people just tolerate this and like it's I don't know. It's weird for me because on the one hand, I kind of agree because like it's not that I'm like, oh, uh, of course these people should have some kind of sympathy for their ska, but rather like her point about how people wouldn't slaughter animals in a courtyard, I'm kind of like, yeah, like 
death is kind of disgusting. Um, it's strange that they're fine with it being literally this close to their party. It feels like what's going on here is that Brandon really wants to hit home for us that all of this beauty and sort of uh, sophistication and whatever, this whole world of this ball is built on a foundation of ska corpses, which is true, but usually, you know, uh, violent class systems aren't quite this obvious about it, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, in the real world, when a person is, like, trying to beg from rich people, they do often get, like, uh, violently dissuaded from that, but it, it'll it be like they're, they're arrested by the yeah. cops. They're taken to jail. Or maybe they are just kicked out into the cold where they're going to starve to death. Like, there, there right. is violence in the way that, like, our society treats someone who is trying to beg, especially if they're trying to do it around really rich people. Um, and again, this is just one of those places where it's like, oh, the violence of the final empire has to be the most extreme, has to be the most mm -hmm. overt. But, yeah. It's 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 still a dramatic moment for sure, and mm -hmm. I do think it's good for Vin to have this thing where she's like getting seduced by the bright lights and the glittering dresses, yeah. and then she's kind of forced to remember what this really is. Yeah, which is uh, murder. Yes. Then chapter nineteen, or chapter nineteen, nineteen. Uh, yeah, next one is nineteen. This is a uh, Kelsier. Doing stuff. Running around Kelsier being Kelsier. Time. First thing he does is he, uh, Hitman style, dumps a body next to <laughs> Techiel's estate. And he has this whole convoluted, like, okay, so this guy is their ally, but he was hanging out with a guy who's not their ally. And this will make everyone confused about who killed him and why. And uh, chaos is just what Kelsier is after with regards to trying to start this house war. Um, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, no, it's good. I think Kelsier dumping a body and thinking about all the, like, weird sort of uh, noble political chaos it's going to cause is good. Uh, <laughs> and then he, um, he leaves there and he dresses up as a noble mm -hmm. with, like, a beard and some makeup and his and mist he, cloak, right? Because that sort of implies that he's maybe noble because it's a mistborn thing, and most mistborn right, are nobles. Yes. But he does keep his arms inside of his cloak instead of, you know, wearing sleeves. <laughs> the, the, his arms are like his toes. He's got to let him out. <laughs> and he meets with Hoyd. Oh my gosh, Hoyd, Hoyd is here. Hoyd, Hoyd alert. Hoyd alert. Uh, Hoyd, Hoyd, Hoyd yeah. loves to be just like a, a cringing low creature crawling in the dust. <laughs> that's what Hoyd likes. Um, yeah. that's what, that's what he was doing last book and that's what he's doing now. Um, he's like an informant. He's like a guy who's basically his job is to spy on noble houses and pass information from that on to other nobles who pay him. Um, yeah. And he's a ska, um, maybe obviously from the thing I said about cringing in the dust, but 
I think it would at least yeah. be plausible that a nobleman might do something like this, um, but probably wouldn't be like meeting in an alley and getting paid cash. Right. Noblemen have other uh, avenues. I guess that's what Mistborn do. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. Um, and he basically, the first thing, what he's actually there for is to check uh check his own cover and be like okay so what's up with nord renew like uh, how suspicious are people of what we're doing uh and it turns out not very but um kelsier himself has started um gaining more notoriety and uh people are talking about the 11th medal and the survivor pass him yeah, uh, and they're also talking about uh, the Lady Villette and Lord Ellen Venture. Yeah. Um, uh, it must mean that uh, House uh, House House uh, Venture has had secret business dealings with Lord Renew. Yes. Because uh, otherwise, how could they have made such a demand? <laughs> yeah, like Lady Villette is so below uh, Ellen Venture's station, um, and yet. They're spending all this time together, and maybe Lord Renew is considering marrying them, so there's got to be something going on. Maybe even Renew has, like, blackmail material on Venture. Um, uh, also, Venture, Lord Illand Venture, has uh, friends. <clears throat> Does everyone know, Hoyd says, that Lord Elland Venture spoke very highly of the girl to his friends, the group of nobling philosophers that lounge at the Broken Quill. <laughs> so those are his buddies, obviously. Those are uh, the bros. Yeah, and he's just like hanging out with them and being like, oh my god, there's this girl. She's so cool. She's so smart. Uh, She's not like Shan at all. She didn't insult... When she insulted me, I liked it. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, that's good. Uh-huh. And uh then oh sorry oh also hoyd reveals that lady shan is a soother um yes so um yeah it, it some of the details about how that works are are slightly interesting to me because it sounds like she's like he hoyd knows more about this than uh than vin does because he says that um She's been given permission to use her powers more at functions because I guess her house is trying to use those soothing powers to like make alliances. Um, And she always carries a thin envelope of shaved brass in her right glove, which I love because that means that she's like excusing herself to powder her nose and just chowing down on brass at parties. (laughs) It makes me think of the sketch where the guy's got a hot dog in his sleeve. (laughs) It's amazing. Like, I mean, also there's a part of me that is like, okay, but how the fuck would Hoyd know any of this shit? And like, why would he tell the truth about this to Kelsier? Because like, you know, he claims that he knows she's a soother because she's felt him soothe her his emotions, but he doesn't give any source for how he knows about what's inside her right glove. <laughs> um, But at the same time, he's Hoyd, so he knows everything probably. I don't know. um and then uh kelsier starts spreading some fake rumors shan's covert relationship with salman tekio yes um 
a secret deal between Ilariel and House Hastings, blah, blah, blah. He's spreading lies to cause chaos. Um, fair enough. And I think that's mostly the end of that part. But then Kelsier uh, makes himself all dirty mm-hmm. and does the same thing in reverse yep. to one Lord Straff Venture. Yeah, Jonas Venture himself. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he he meets with the the head of House Venture and turns around and does the exact thing that Hoyd was just doing, and he's like a scrabbling beggar who is uh, trading scraps of information. Um. Uh, and so uh, he, he has some things to say about oh, House Arakel is. Is, is cheating you. They're selling their swords and canes to House Tekiel for half the price. But Adventure's really more interested in this stuff about the survivor of Hathsin. Yeah. Uh, and and this rumor of a quote-unquote 11th medal. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, also one fascinating implication. Uh, Venture says, assuming the survivor did die in the pits, and if someone had gotten a hold of his corpse his bones, there are ways to imitate a man's appearance. You know of what I speak? Yes, my lord, Kelsier said. So, I don't know what the fuck that is. Um, We certainly (laughs) haven't heard of using someone's bones to imitate their appearance as something that any of the allomantic metals could do. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't really sound like the kind of thing that we've been told that keepers, or perhaps ferrucamists, question mark, can do. So... I don't know what the hell that's about. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, I look forward to finding out. Um, I guess... Ooh, I wonder... Because, okay, now I'm just thinking about Mistwraiths. Because Mm -hmm. we know that Mistwraiths are carrion eaters, and that they take on the characteristics of the carrion that they have eaten. And there was that implication that perhaps if they were old enough, or maybe if they had eaten enough human corpses, they could become intelligent. Mm -hmm. So now I'm like, oh shit... If you had, like, a fully sapient mistwraith and you gave it someone's corpse, would the mistwraith then be able to take on that person's appearance and, like, uh, pretend to be them? Hmm. It doesn't really fit with the image we've had of mistwraiths as, like, these shambling beasts that um, Hmm. are, like, look like very obvious monsters and also are partially translucent. Uh... But, you know, um, God only knows what shit lurks out there in the mists, I suppose. And by God, I mean the Lord Ruler. (laughs) He probably does know. (laughs) Much to think about. Um, (sighs) We have Kelsier going back home. Sharing Uh, his The website here just says, Kelsier returns to Mansion Renault. Trading information with Vin says it in Renault. I mean, yeah, I think that's pretty much what happens. Um, This is the bit where Kelsier is, like, uh, really trying to hammer home for Vin the idea that Ellen Venture is not a good person, not sympathetic to her, and basically nothing good can come of her interacting with him. Um, And, like, whatever sort of... uh, you know, anti-Lord Ruler or anti-Final Empire political sentiments he may appear to have, um, 
those are not something that is actually like good for Vin. They're not useful. If he's interested in that, it's it's just because it's fashionable. It doesn't mean anything. And uh, the reason Kelsier is hammering all this home, obviously, as he constantly mentions in his internal monologue, is that he <laughs> can tell that Vin is falling in love with Ellen Venture. And he doesn't want that. <laughs> so, of course, like any sensible father would do, when he realizes his daughter is falling in love with an undesirable boy, he's like, Vin, that boy is bad for you. Stay far away from him. There have always been noblemen like him. Young philosophers and dreamers who think that their ideas are new. They like to drink with their friends and grumble about the Lord Ruler, but in their hearts, they're still noblemen. They'll never overthrow the establishment. But, says Vin. <laughs> no, Vin, you have to trust me. Oh, uh, yeah. And and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's There can only be one masculine influence on your life, and it's me, goddammit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It It is interesting, like, the conversation that Vin and Ellen had about Ska, because they did have a conversation about Ska, where, like, mm. um, you know, Ellen was kind of trying to press her for what she knows about Ska as as people, and, and I guess to some extent just kind of, like, what her opinions on Ska are, like, whether she thinks that they're, like, fully human. And she kind of... It, it, she, like, at first almost, like, instinctively said things that were, like, a little bit revealing of her true perspective. And then she was kind of like, oh, shit, I gotta be a noble woman here. And so she started being like, ah, oh, who cares? They're just ska. Um, and it's very clear that, like, ska life and, like, ska experience are something Ellen Venture wants to know about and wants to talk yeah. about. Like, and when, she's, when she starts dropping the, like, party line... He gets, like, disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's interesting to me, like, I think that the idea that because he has this interest, he must, like, truly share sympathies with the Rebellion and, like, basically mm -hmm. want the same things they want, clearly that's not going to be true, right? Like, it just wouldn't make any sense if he was truly fully on their side. Um, However, I do think that Kelsier is wrong to say that it's clearly just like a totally surface interest um like it may be a, a primarily intellectual interest for ellen right it may be primarily a way of being kind of rebellious because he wants to rebel against his father not so much like a deep-seated political belief at the same time it's clearly something he spends a lot of time with you know mm -hmm. um so i don't know <clears throat> but yeah when you spend time with Ellen Venture you put the operation and your fellow crew members in jeopardy understood sure Kelsier sure I'm sure there could be no possible benefit for Vin getting in good with one of the most powerful fucking people like I get the, why the heir to the biggest family I, I get I get why it would be like, okay, you can't just like straight up become friends with this guy and like open up to him and it seems like you're kind of doing that, so please stop that, Vin. But at the same time, like obviously they can use this connection. Like, come on. Yeah, but when Kelsier mentions that, he's like, Oh, we could kill him. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> there were, by the way, like a couple things in this chapter where I was like, what does that mean? Um, that mm -hmm. I just wanted to highlight. Um, one was, uh, 
when um Kelsier's talking to Renew mm-hmm. and he's kind of like he says a man could get very confused from this kind of play acting. I don't know how you do it, Renew. Obviously referring to the fact that like he was just RPing a nobleman a little bit and it was a little confusing for him. Mm-hmm. But Renew does this 24-7. It is who I am, the Chandra said simply. Okay. Mm-hmm. Chandra. Yeah. It's not capitalized. It's which not is capitalized. fascinating. <laughs> um but yeah no i don't know what the fuck a contra is um i don't know what's up with lord renew um maybe he has used strange powers to imitate the appearance of a man who is now dead um we'll see uh yeah that's obviously just like a tantalizing little droplet um uh, and I guess we only get this word because it's from Kelsier's perspective. Um, there was a moment yeah. where I was kind of like, wait a minute, where's this word coming from? But, but I guess Kelsier just knows what a contra is. And so mm-hmm. he doesn't think about it when he's internally monologuing. Um, and then, uh, uh, there's also this thing when they're talking about the book. Uh, which, by the way, or rather, sorry, not the book. There's two books now. Um, the book that Venture was reading. Uh, mm-hmm. um, the actual title of that book is Book of the False Dawn. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. Which is funny for me, obviously. But, uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he's kind of talking about how the book is, you know, a little um, a little provocative. And the author wrote some other books that were more damning. Um Though he didn't blaspheme against Allomancy, the obligators made an exception in his case and strung him up on a hook anyway. Um, so, you know, the author of these of this book was uh, killed by obligators, so clearly it's not like a totally toothless thing. But mm-hmm. also, blaspheme against Allomancy? Mm. I don't know what that means. Like, uh, the idea that Allomancy is part of the religion that the Lord Ruler uh, sort of <laughs> is at the center of. Um, that's new um, and interesting. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's because we know that the nobles try to keep allomantic powers secret. So obviously, allomancy as like part of part of the faith that the part of the the faith of the final empire that is not something that ska know about um but i guess it's something nobility know about because nobles seem to generally speaking know about allomancy um it seems like there's multiple versions of the actual religion yes. being like used because there's that and then there's also like this book right this like book that was in credit shaw but it, and it would be related to the use of the Lord Ruler's life as religious uh, text, but isn't, which makes me think maybe it is a text for specifically obligators or inquisitors, but not yeah. for nobles. It there's sort of like a weird tiered system. It's it, you know it's almost it's like a Patreon. Like... <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. If you subscribe to the Lord Ruler's Patreon at a thousand dollars a month, you get to read his diary. <laughs> Oh, God, um, that makes it Scientology. Well, what I was about to say is that it seems like an occult 
religion, um, which Scientology uh. is, which is to mm-hmm. say, uh, you know, one where some of the truths about what this religion believes are are secret, and you only learn them once you have been initiated to a certain level. Right. Um, so that does kind of seem to be what's going on here, um, which is interesting for sure. Yeah. Um. Also, like spe- speaking of uh, like the Lord Ruler's diary, um, and just kind of the space that they found it, um, inside. Uh, oh God, what's that? What's the castle called? Credickshaw. Credickshaw. There we go. Um, there also is clearly some kind of set of rituals around the Lord Ruler. You know, there's this thing where he goes and spends time in this room, mm. and there appeared to be a, some kind of shrine inside it. Um, so. The Lord Ruler may have his own religious practice that certainly is is top secret from anyone except his his closest servants. Perhaps it's only known by obligators. Maybe I don't know. Um, that that's all you know. Who knows what that's about? Um, but well, I I assume if you're a guy and you start an empire. And you live for a thousand years, and you make a new religion about yourself. You might still have your own religion from a thousand years ago, I guess. Yeah, that's very possible. Like, it, it is certainly entirely possible that the Lord Ruler does not actually perceive himself as God. Or, you know, another possibility here, like, we've encountered this sliver of infinity idea before, right? Oh, um, yes. So, it's totally possible that, like, that... that he conceives of himself as divine, but that he like that this sliver of infinity thing is kind of the uh version of it that say I don't know most nobles know about or or whatever where it's like yes he is like of God but he's not the totality of God and then mm-hmm. as for what that looks like for the Lord Ruler personally we don't know um now I will say that uh. He, I find it completely believable that he considers himself to be God or to be divine in some sense because he is like an autocratic ruler. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about. And, um, you know, I'm sure we're going to learn more about what the Lord Ruler really is, what the deepness really is or was, um, what he really did. Maybe we'll learn what God actually is. That would be fascinating and cool. Yeah. I would would love to know if there <laughs> is like an actual divine force that is separate from the Lord Ruler somehow, but is like definitively in this world. That would be very interesting. Uh, but I don't know if we're going to get there or not. We'll see. Um is it time for me to read our chapter headers for this one? Uh well we we went through 20, right? Chapter 20. Didn't we? We, not talk, we didn't talk about chapter 20 yet. Yeah, we did not talk about chapter 20 yet. Um, Shit. Okay. Uh, Vin is getting kind of bored with uh, traveling in a carriage all the time and yeah, going Vin's to balls. Vin's doing noble things, which means traveling in a carriage all the time, going to balls, going to luncheons, etc. Uh, she watches some ska children run ahead of them in the carriage and like shake all the ash out of the trees so none of it falls on the nobles. And she's like, damn... I bet Helen just doesn't know how the scar treated because he lives. He doesn't live near them. He doesn't know. Um, 
They yeah. are shipping weapons and food in crates out to the army. Because, like, you know, Uno needs to be seen getting rid of or using the things that he's he's hoarding and, like, stockpiling. So yeah. they're sending those out. Um, then Marsh shows up. Yeah, we get a nice... I said Sazed is my favorite character. It goes back and forth between Sazed and Marsh. Because Marsh is really cool. Yeah. Um, Vin has like a nice long little scene with Marsh. Um, yeah. So Marsh is a seeker, which is the person who can burn bronze, which lets you detect when allomancy is being used. Um, and he... Uh, is you know that kind of like also informs part of his character he's one of the more like he's he's known as um what's his nickname it's like T- uh uh iron eyes iron eyes because he's like he's very perceptive he's very observant and that kind of plays in with him being a seeker as well and, and he's he, here hmm? he's also just like very intense like he has a yes. powerful gaze um a, a friend of mine was describing a, an anecdote that they read about uh, uh, George Lucas, where <laughs> George Lucas was described as giving someone a glacial stare. Oh, so literally that meme image of him with lasers coming out of his eyes, right? <laughs> it's just that it's uh, it's a beam of ice power rather than yeah. uh, lasers, as we previously thought. Uh, we've learned more information about the strange powers that George Lucas has. He has many. But um, could he uh, could he be fully skeletonized and uh, regenerate within a matter of seconds? I don't know. I don't think anyone's <laughs> tried. George Lucas is only using 2% of his power currently. <laughs> um, um, but we get like a tutorial, basically. We have yeah. Ben is going to learn about bronze and how bronze might be useful. This is uh, echoing our time with Soothing a couple chapters ago. Uh... <laughs> and we learn kind of why the metals are sort of arranged the way they are. Yeah, um, there's a little bit more of kind of talk about, I guess, the way that you would like arrange these things in essentially a grid of yes. like different qualities of like internal, external, push, pull, etc. Um, and physical and mental. Yep, yep. Um, It's all right. Uh, I do find the way that Marsh talks about how he actually uses this power to be interesting because, um, uh, there's really like a great deal of, um, kind of knowledge that you have to learn about what the different metals feel like, uh, but also like what it means if you're feeling certain things like, so you can tell, for example, if you're interacting with another Mistborn, even if that Mistborn is, uh, you know, smoking, uh, <laughs> just to say, just to say burning Capital copper, S. burning copper to conceal their use of allomantic powers. Um, yeah. But it's like uh, you can kind of there are certain traces that that's going to leave and you'll be able to tell from those things. You'll be like, oh, this has to be a Mistborn. This has to be someone who has multiple of these powers. Um there's a lot of, like, basically being able to understand things around you, not just from, like, directly perceiving things with your magic power, but from understanding 
like more complicated things about what your specific magical perceptions imply. Um, Cause he says bronze will help you identify mistborn. If you see someone using allomancy when there is no smoker nearby and you don't sense them giving off allomantic pulses, you know, they're a mistborn either that or they're an inquisitor. And then in, in either case, you should probably run. Yeah. Um, which is weird. Inquisitors are fucked up. Yeah. Um, um, and, and oops, sorry, go on. I was just gonna say, like he he makes a point of being like, isn't it more useful to know that you're being soothed and be able to understand like what's happening rather than just block it and not know that you the attempt is being made? Yeah, yeah. This is one of those moments where it's kind of emphasized that each of these powers has its advantages and its pitfalls and. Like, I think Vin has kind of been getting into this attitude of, like, why would I ever not just be, like, burning copper constantly? And this is right. kind of the explanation for that. Um, also, uh, Vin does some, does some pretty slick maneuvering in this oh, scene. Yeah. Because um, she wants to hear Marsh tell her more about, like, his experience with allomancy and like how he gained it and about his like life um so she starts uh soothing him uh or rather sorry she starts both soothing and rioting him i think she's like dampening his suspicion and heightening his like nostalgia um, or a wistfulness mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and also obviously uh using copper to hide it um and he's able to figure out what she's doing but not because he can actually sense the powers just because he notices that he's kind of rambling and he's like oh she's soothing me um it's like he he basically he's like you know how kelsier feels about nobility i feel the same about, about obligators i'll do anything to hurt them they took our mother. That's when I snapped, and that's when I vowed to destroy them. So I joined the rebellion and started learning all I could about Alamancy. Inquisitors use it, so I had to understand it. Understand everything I could, be as good as I could, and are you soothing me? <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel he would say it, is just, like, smoothly in the middle of his sentence, and, like, not with a lot of, uh, emotion. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, uh... Yeah, this, uh, this, this kind of, we get a little more of a sense of, like, Marsh and Kelsier's history of, like, you know, um, obligators killed or, or took, there's a possibility, I guess, that they just kidnapped her, I don't know, but I think it's being implied that she was killed, killed mm -hmm. their mother, um, and for, for Marsh, that gave him, like, a lifelong mission of vengeance, uh, but for Kelsier, that moment of wanting to take vengeance and like becoming fired with a purpose. Um, and also that moment of allomantic snapping didn't happen until much later in life. Right. Um, uh, and we also learn a little more about Vin and her brother and her experience. Right. Um, I was going to mention one thing before we talk about that. Oh, go for it. Go for it. Um, which is that Vin is just really good with bronze. Like she just has a, a knack for bronze because she's able to like uh, uh detect little subtleties that Marsh says would take usually take a little more practice to actually be able to 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 notice cuz she can yeah. like 
determine the pulses and like part of the thing is like she feels this pulse coming off of someone and like the direction it's coming from and the length of it and the speed of it uh, are all factors of like categorizing what metal it is and she's able to like differentiate different ones immediately uh rather than like just being able to tell oh that's a metal yeah 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 i think we've kind of gotten implications like this before with other uh elementic powers that vin is just kind of a natural um she has uh, like an instinctive uh uh use as well because like she's taking the metals that are in trace amounts and like her contaminated water as like a thief and like using it that's what she had her luck at the beginning of the book uh it's like trace amounts of metals and she she's able to like subconsciously use allomancy in a way that is not seemingly not very common yeah like she's she's really been using allomancy slightly uh but she has been using it i mean as far as we understand pretty much her entire life um i i life (laughs) yeah i wonder if we're gonna get so the question of the now that we've been introduced to this idea of snapping right um the the question came up like when Kelsier first described that Vin was like oh when did that happen to me and he's like well you've been through a lot of terrible shit <laughs> so it really could have been any time um I don't know if we're ever gonna get like a more specific sense uh than that but I feel I felt like this chapter was kind of implying that uh Vin's um. Well, this scene that she describes with her mother and Reen is mm-hmm. probably what caused her to snap. Um, because, I mean, first of all, because it's just like a hugely traumatic event. It's coming face to face with death. Um, and also because it feels kind of parallel to what Marsh is describing as his own snapping, which is like an mm-hmm. early sort of uh, traumatic experience specifically with his mother to which he and Kelsier reacted very differently. And I think Vin and Reen also reacted pretty differently to this experience. Yes. Um, yeah. So what, what she actually describes, because um, Marsh is talking about his relationship with Kelsier and how like he loves him, uh, even though he has problems with him. And Vin is like, well, I hate my brother. Uh, I can't really understand caring about your sibling. And Marsh is like, oh, well, what was your life like? I know one of your parents was noble. And Vin's like, yeah, my mother was mad. Um, and she, she heard voices and Reen didn't want to leave us, us uh, alone with her, but he kind of had to. And then one day she killed my baby sister and was like babbling about me being a queen. And she gave me an earring and then Reen just took me and we ran away. Um. So. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Um, a lot. It's really a lot. Um, it makes Vin's attachment to the earring a lot more complicated. Uh-huh. Like, I had previously assumed that her mother died somehow tragically and, like, giving vin the earring was like her last act uh mm-hmm. but actually vin's mother could totally still be alive i 
theoretically giving her the earring was her last act. Well, uh, yeah, so it was the re- it was their last like interaction, but it's it's not it's not like a a beloved tragically dying parent passing on an heirloom. It's right. like someone who has been I mean, it honestly sounds like Vin's mother was as much of a terrifying force throughout her childhood as Reen was. Like Reen was afraid to leave Vin and her unnamed sister alone with her mother and you know she turned out to be like violent um so yeah i don't think that vin necessarily has the type of kind of straightforward tragic positive memories of her mother that i was assuming mm-hmm. but she also clearly does want to retain this attachment to her she cares a lot about this earring and um This also, something I had mentioned before was that I was like, I'm so curious about, and I feel like I don't really understand what Vin's mother's, like, life was actually like, because we were told that she was the mistress of a nobleman, and I kind of assumed Mm -hmm. that that meant that she was, like, you know, living somewhere that that nobleman was paying for, and, like, being kind of, being given dresses and Mm -hmm. jewels and, like, Mm -hmm. kept in the way that that nobleman wanted to keep like his mistress um but uh it sounds like i I mean this idea that reen was afraid to leave his sisters alone with his mother to me that kind of implies that they are living on their own and probably living on the streets rather than like you know uh, living as the children of a noble's mistress because like mm-hmm. in that situation they'd be in a house with servants you know there'd be other people around um so and also it's a little uh, it's not impossible to believe but it's interesting and strange to imagine one of the noblemen of this society keeping not just a, a ska woman but a mad woman as a mistress um I guess it could be the case that this was a change that occurred in her after yeah. Vin was born. Yeah, it's in not fact, really clear. That's definitely something that I was kind of imagining was that what yeah. happened was at some point in her life she was the mistress of a nobleman and she was like probably kept in some degree of luxury and and that was when she like conceived Vin, but mm-hmm. somehow she went mad and I bet it had something to do with being like treated really horribly by vin's father i would imagine mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um also reen knows who vin's father is which to me strongly implies that like there was some period of time when like reen and vin's father and their mother were all like in the same place somehow right right um <sighs> and uh Oh, wow. All right. Something just hit me. Um, because, okay, Vin has an earring and her mother madly told her she was a queen. Clearly, Vin has some kind of secret birthright and that earring is like the proof of it. Um, this is like classic fantasy novel shit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Secret princess. And I have like this little battered family heirloom that I don't realize is actually like the crown jewels. Uh-huh. I think that's very clearly what's going on with Vin. 
what if Vin is the secret child of the Lord Ruler? Ooh, that would be a a big bombshell. That'd be a big bombshell. I also think it would go some way towards explaining the fact that Vin is like an extraordinarily capable Mistborn, right? Because Uh the Lord Ruler seems to be the most powerful Alamancer in existence. Right. Um, The Anakin, if you will. Sorry? The Anakin. Oh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. That's an interesting thing. Um, and then, you know, presumably if that were the case, her supposed father is actually, like, someone whom, you know, the Lord Ruler kind of uh, set up to mm. uh, take on that role, I guess. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, yes. Also, Vin uh, perceives that Marsh was also in love with Mare. Yes. Uh, So, that's interesting. The mystic eyes of love triangle perception. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, and, uh, And also, Marsh doesn't really... Marsh is really all right with the idea that he doesn't really think that Kelsier's plan is going to fully succeed because he thinks that um, by getting into the ministry, he'll be able to gather information that will help the rebellion for hundreds of years later. So Marsh is really playing a long game here and thinking about like what this movement will be able to accomplish after he's dead, which is a big contrast with Kelsier, who really does seem extremely focused on his own charismatic leadership and his like personal vendetta against the Lord Ruler. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um I was a little disappointed, by the way, in actually there's in this conversation in this chapter. And then also there was a moment like in the first chapter we read where it actually seems like Vin has come around to the idea of thinking that Kelsier's plan probably is going to succeed, which I was a little disappointed Uh, in because we we found it so interesting a little while ago mm -hmm. when Vin was like, look, I don't really expect to survive. Um, It feels like she made the transition from that perspective to actually being bought in on Kelsier's scheme I mean, it feels like she made that transition during the two weeks that she was unconscious, which is bizarre. <laughs> but she woke up and was like, oh, wow, everyone's working together. Yaden is, like, shaving. <laughs> yeah. Like, I get I get why it totally makes sense to me that as the scheme goes along, she would kind of slowly and subtly start to be like, oh, I guess, actually, this might work. Um, but she also said something to Kelsier that was like, Kelsier, after that you know debacle at the ministry we're not invincible are we and it's like vin before you went into that situation you were literally saying you expected to die you didn't expect to live throughout the rest of the year so like where did this idea of invincibility come from i don't know weird (sighs) weird um yeah wanna Uh, Mar- Marsh is good. I like Marsh a lot. I like how Marsh and Kelsier as characters also characterize each other. Like, as we learn about Marsh and his early life and how it shaped him, we also see some of why Kelsier is like the way he is, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Um, they they mirror each other in a good way. <clears throat> Chapter headers. Oh yeah, baby. They get a little long this time. 
not 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 any like single lines. Chapter sixteen. Many think that my journey started in Clinium, that great city of wonder. They forget that I was no king when my quest began. Far from it. I think it would do men well to remember that this task was not begun by emperors, priests, prophets, or generals. It didn't start in Clinium or Cordell, nor did it, did it come from the great nations to the east or the fiery empire of the west. It began in a small, unimportant town whose name would mean nothing to you. It began with a youth, the son of a blacksmith, who was unremarkable in every way, except, perhaps, in his ability to get into trouble. It began with me. Damn. I'm Fantasyman. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me you're telling me that the hero will arise from humble origins? Uh might he at some point have refused the call? Uh might he have uh, descended into the underworld? <laughs> well here, chapter seventeen. Sometimes I wonder what would have happened if I'd remained there in that lazy village of my birth. I'd have become a smith like my father. Perhaps I'd have a family, sons of my own. Perhaps someone else would have come to carry this terrible burden. Someone who could bear it far better than I. Someone who deserved to be a hero. Seems like he he uh, he might have considered rejecting the call. But, but in the next, <laughs> in the next one. Chapter 18. You could say that circumstances forced me to leave my home behind. Certainly if I had stayed, I would now be dead. During those days, running without knowing why, carrying a burden I didn't understand, I assumed I would lose myself in Clenium and seek a life of indistinction. I am slowly coming to understand that anonymity, like so many other things, has already been lost to me forever. So it sounds like he tried to refuse the call, but uh, the call forced him to anyway, which, uh, again, that never happens. That never, this never happens. <clears throat> Chapter 19. Juan and I met by happenstance, though I suppose he would use the word providence. I've met many other terrorist philosophers since that day. They are every one men of wisdom and ponderous sagaciousness. That just means wisdom, dude. Y yeah. <laughs> men with an almost palpable importance. Not so, Quan. In a way, he is as unlikely a prophet as I am a hero. He never had an air of ceremonious wisdom, nor was he even a religious scholar. You've used wisdom three times. <laughs> when we first met, he was studying one of his ridiculous interests in the Great Clinny Library. I believe he was trying to determine whether or not trees could think. That he should be the one to finally discover the great hero of Terrace prophecy is a, is a matter that would cause me to laugh had events turned out just a little differently. Nora, be nice to him. This is just the diary that no one else is ever going to read. <laughs> I don't always have the best word choice when I'm, like, journaling. <laughs> I've never journaled. I've never journaled. I, I've, uh, I, I haven't actually journaled that much either. There was, like, a brief period earlier this year and one last year where I was, like, journaling all the fucking time, and then I just mm. kind of stopped. Life's weird. <laughs> I can't write without having the fundamental assumption that somebody will read it eventually. Yeah, I mean, that's actually kind of why I didn't journal very much, especially like when I was a kid, I kept trying to keep diaries, but I was always get really caught up in thinking about like, when I read this as an adult, or like when someone reads it later, how much am I actually going to know about the context here? And I felt like I had to explain everything for my future self, which is very funny. I definitely remember in my journal uh, as a child, trying to explain in detail what Neopets is. <laughs> 
And I'm like, now I'm like, I know what Neopets is. I remember. I could have just written Neopets in my childhood diary <laughs> and I would understand now. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. um, Chapter 20. It isn't a shadow. This dark thing that follows me. This thing only I can see. It isn't really a shadow. It's blackish and translucent, but it doesn't have a shadow-like solid outline. It's insubstantial, wispy and formless, like it's made out of dark fog. Or mist, perhaps. This one's really silly to me. <laughs> because indistinct shadows with with like vague outlines are something that one encounters in daily life <laughs> all the time. Like, if the sun is out, but it's kind of partly cloudy, there are light clouds, you'll get that. Um, if you're in a place where there are like two significant light sources like you're in a dark room with a candle at either end you'll get shadows that look like that <laughs> like no I, oh I, I see the confusion no uh this guy was actually from plato's cave so it only distinct <laughs> shadows <laughs> yeah i also think it's very funny that um he, he says like it's made out of a dark fog paragraph break yes or mist perhaps and it's That's like so funny it, it he's really emphasizing mist huh <laughs> and Ooh. it's like does this did this mean anything to you at the time you were writing this like supposedly this was before <laughs> the mists covered the earth so like right um but whatever That's uh so clearly beautiful. what it's trying to do is to tell us that the deepness is somehow connected to the mists uh oh, so good to know uh, that does kind of make it sound like perhaps the hero and the Lord Ruler did not actually defeat the deepness so much as just, like, disperse it over everything? Hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe. Um, that might explain why in supposedly saving the world, he also fucked it all up. Um, Maybe. Um, or maybe uh, the terrorist prophecies were always like, yeah, the world's going to get covered in ash. That's what's supposed to happen. Don't read ahead. <laughs> <laughs> the the terrorist prophecies are like, and then he will be of noble or, 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 or ignoble birth. Do not read ahead. Do not see what the next page is until this has come to pass. But everything's going to go to shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um yeah good stuff good uh, stuff. good to have my theory about these passages 100 percent clearly confirmed um yeah. i was right all along about this as i always have been about everything yeah you're usually right about things yeah um uh i i have secretly cultivated uh a deep collection of metal mines Oh. I know thousands of ancient languages. You know thousands of, of anecdotes about Gene Wolfe. God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, where can people send anecdotes about Gene Wolfe if they have them? Uh, yeah, if you want to tell me any an personal anecdotes about Gene Wolfe, please do at me on Twitter at Char Asnablunt. 
Um, and you could also listen to my podcast, Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, which is on the Abnormal Mapping Network at uh, abnormalmapping.com slash whale. Um, we've slowed down a little bit with our episodes because uh, we have been covering Moby Dick adaptations and some of them are like long, so we need more time to cover them. And also there was Christmas and uh, Ben's really busy with his uh, grad school right now. But our most recent episode, I think, was a total banger because we were talking about this completely absurd anime called Hakuge Legend of the Moby Dick. And I think our next episode is also going to be a banger because we will be talking about the four-hour-long musical Moby Dick, A Musical Reckoning, which everything I've heard about that musical sounds completely bonkers. There's a 30-minute spoken word section. There was a splash zone. Um... What? Yes. Like, the stage was the Pequod. Like, the stage it sh- itself was shaped like a ship, and I guess they had fucking water splashing off the side of it. Um, I We've only been able to get a bootleg copy of the audio and not the video, which is very sad. Oh. Especially because there's a part of me that's, like, just desperate to know whether they had, like, a giant puppet Moby Dick. It kind of seems like they must have, but I, I don't know for sure. Um... It's actually Shamu. <laughs> God. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I think that uh, when we talk about that, it's going to be fascinating. So oh, I would yeah. recommend checking out my podcast. Where can we find you on the internet, Nora? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at neither Nora. Find stuff I've done at Nora like that online. Uh, if you. Go to exportaudio or patreon.com slash exportaudio and give us money. You'll get this episode. and Well, not this episode, probably. But the next one, you'll get a week early. Um, presumably, if you're signing up, you don't have this one early. But you'll get them early in the future. And if you give us $5, you will have access to Poptown Funk, the premier uh, Funko Pop podcast on Export Audio, where we roll a random Funko Pop and then watch whatever movie it's from. Um, we just watched Death Kappa, which was an amazing uh, sort of kaiju movie about a big Kappa, uh, although he's not that big at the start, obviously. In um, <clears throat> the next episode, we're going to be watching season 11, episode 4 of Supernatural, because we rolled the Funko Pop <laughs> for the car from Supernatural, and that episode happens to be one that is uh, according to the Wikipedia like, sh- maybe shot from the POV of the car the whole time? God. So, that'll be fun. I don't know anything about Supernatural, except that uh, obviously Dean from Gilmore Girls is in it. Yeah, yeah. The thing about Supernatural is that they took the guy who is like incredibly obviously named Dean, like not just because he's named <laughs> Dean on Gilmore Girls, but because if you look at that man, you yeah. consider his face, mm-hmm. you're like, oh yeah, this dude's named Dean. The bangs, and then they, important. The, yes, the bangs, that's part of what makes him named Dean for sure. And then they decided to have that guy not be the one named Dean on Supernatural. <laughs> <laughs> Bizarre. <laughs> Both of the guys on Supernatural are named Dean. I don't believe in the concept of Sam. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sam Truther. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, that that'd pod- be fun. 
Yeah, that podcast is great. Um, it sounds like it's one of the most cursed things ever because it's all about Funko Pops, but what it's really about is Nora and Autumn being incredibly engaging podcasters. What the? You can't. Yeah. Do, you can't say stuff like that. I can and I will. Damn. I guess I can't argue with that. Yeah, I guess all there is left to do is to thank Brandon. Thanks, Brand. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. I was really high on these chapters, even though uh, there's quite a bit of questionable uh, narrative choices being made. Yeah, yeah, we got, I, we got, we got castration, we got madness, uh, we got infanticide. Uh, I don't really trust Brandon with any of that shit, but at the same time, uh, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of good stuff in these chapters. If you'll forgive, forgive my pun, this book is a little breezy. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. All right, I'm going to stop recording. All right, thanks, Brandon.